If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be gougy, fighty, and bitey. And here's why. In this episode, we're finding answers to how can we make fighters that feel like they have a lot more going on than surface-level details? And are there systems and structures that can deliver this ideal consistently? And why should you never get drunk and call your best friend names that hurt their feelings? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So as we recently discussed on Martial Arts and Culture featuring James Mendez Hodes, Travis, you and I are not good fighters in any sense of the word. No. <laughs> we are terrible fighters. We have a terrible martial culture, which is yeah, mostly consisting of soiling yourself or playing turtle. And I would blame it on being a pacifist, but really it's just laziness, I guess. If you want to call that pacifism, because when we used to scrap... I distinctly remember me trying to scrap and you would just jump around. Yeah. Like you just stayed aloft and the more you jumped and high kicked, the less I could get close. Or when I did manage to actually break through that ridiculous defense, you would simply turtle or play possum and just roll and collapse on the <laughs> ground. Yeah. My strategy was agility, dexterity, and confusion. <laughs> What's wrong with that? It was surprisingly effective. You just sat there like a stump waiting for your opportunity. Yeah, I call my approach patience, resiliency, and craftiness. And we make these sound way better than they are. If you saw us scrapping back then, <laughs> it was a sad display. It was truly tragic. But we're talking about fighters in D&D today in our fantasy role-playing games. And I got to say, one of the biggest problems that I see with fighters is the trap that I walked into when creating my own first fighter. He was exactly what you find when you Google search D&D fighter, which if you're curious, do it now. It's like 15 to 20 of the exact same picture of a fighter in a fighter stance. Yeah, it's always kind of a three quarter turn with a sword forward, shield backward, and like a defiant pose. And just like a standard looking dude. Yeah. Nothing interesting about him other than that he's in armor. And then it starts to get weird and wild when you find another, like a dwarven fighter or a lizard folk fighter, like a dragonborn starts to get a little out there. But if you blur your eyes, <laughs> they all kind of just mesh into one. It's very, very homogenous. Yeah. And when it gets really wild, you add a little bit of glowing on the weapon and or some spikes on the armor. And that's about as evolved as those concepts get. So how do we fix that? Well, we go back to that episode I just mentioned, Martial Arts and Culture, and we apply all of those concepts to creating our fighters. Because if you think about every other class in D&D, &D, and some of them we've covered, like Druid and Cleric, and even, you know, Wizard, they're all kind of based on either legends or complete fiction, right? Yeah. But the fighter is based on everybody who's ever lived, every culture that's ever been, <laughs> everything. Well, so what you're saying is that like druids, the entire class of druids, were very, very specific leaders of groups of Celts long ago. Like... The inspiration's incredibly narrow, but what you're saying is that fighters are based on anybody that's ever held a weapon. Yeah, and every culture, I'm pretty sure, in history has gone to war with themselves or another. Well, as we mentioned in that episode, we went to war with spoons. Does that make us fighters? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. Settled. <laughs> Travis and I are not fighters. So we've taken that episode, turned it into some steps that we're going to get into in the strategy stateroom, and Travis and I are going to come up with some fighters that are inspired by things that we think are cool and that result in very different feeling characters. Well, here's hoping. I mean, don't count your chickens before they hatch. We could end up shitting out something truly awful. I will count all my eggs now. Let's go to the strategy stateroom. This 
is the strategy stateroom where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. So the steps to creating a better fighter. First, we're going to find two to three points that inspire us that make us go oh that's cool then we're going to research and borrow elements from each then we create our fighters culture and then create the fighter themselves and we will end up with something far more robust so let's jump into those individual steps the first of which is getting inspired now there's so much here and i know you've probably already got something cooking in your head you've probably done this to some degree with your characters at least but i mean you can pick from a group or an individual that feels like something you want to explore since i'm so deeply in this fighting styles track i mean there's so many that travis and i have never even heard of that would be great jumping off points like here's a few fun ones for you cambodian bokator translated to pounding a lion based on the legend of a man that defeated a lion with a single powerful perfectly placed knee strike i'm into that i want to make a fighter that knocked the fuck out a lion that's awesome with powerful meaty bony knees we've got gouging also known as rough and tumble a fighting style from 18th and 19th century usa where the most common victory was gouging out your opponent's eye not a lot of options for rematches in gouging huh yeah you've pretty much got one fight and then you shouldn't do any more after that well i mean depends on how cool you are you could maybe go too. You're saying be a eyeless fighter? Well, stick to it. I mean, stand by your convictions. Are you a gouger or are you not a gouger? You get back in that ring. <laughs> I guess then at least you have the advantage over your opponent because they've got nothing else to take from you. Yeah, there you go. You just you flail around in there until you find some <laughs> eyes to gouge. Good technique. Or how about tire machete? Uh, those are two words. Yeah, a Haitian form of machete fencing used in the rebellion against the French. Cool. Yeah. You see someone charging at you with a machete and they know how to use it? No, thank you. Or Kalari, a style of fighting from India that according to legend was created by the god Parashurama and utilizes weapons like the Urumi or whip sword. Okay, I've actually seen that and that is buck wild. I love that. Yeah. You just slapping each other with swords, which, how does that make any sense? Because they flop around and flail. Like, they look so difficult to control. Yeah, apparently you need to practice a lot with something that's not a whip sword first so that you don't slice yourself open every time you flail that thing around. Oh my goodness. Okay, but there's lots of other things. Like, we can look for inspiration wherever. It's stuff that just inspires you that you think is just darn cool. So we can even look at weapons or historical events or even character themes. So let any of those things just kind of fuel your ideas. So each of us is going to complete each of these steps as we go through this episode. So, Jordan, what did you get? All right, well, I went down a certain rabbit hole of Filipino martial arts because Fun. I wanted a fast and agile character. And that's where that research led me. I'll get into the specifics of that a little bit later, but I also found a cultural hero of the Ifugao province of the Philippines, Ali Guyon, because I needed, you know, I needed my character to have somebody to inspire them and give them some more juice for their story. Sure. And then I also settled on kind of a redemption storyline, but with a bit of a twist. Okay. How about yourself? What got you going? Well, I'm a simple man with simple things that, make me tick and what i think is cool is viking berserkers war hammers and the theme of a living weapon like we mentioned in a couple of episodes ago we were talking about that general theme of like being something that's been trained to be a weapon right it just so happens that i am in fact a simple man because i'd already made this character <laughs> You just recycle all your content, eh? Yeah, I just, <laughs> I'm going to get some more mileage out of it. But in talking about this episode, it did remind me that, hey, this character, it's an older character. And you can do this with yours as well when you realize that maybe they need a little bit more depth. Maybe the reason you haven't come back to play this character again is because they're played out or they were one dimensional. You got them up to level three or four and you said, ah, eh, this character is actually kind of boring. I might make a new character. Yeah. Sent him into the lava fields to 
quickly die so you can <laughs> create a new character. Sentence your characters to death <laughs> when they've no longer sparked your inspiration. You have disappointed me. <laughs> Into the lava fields with you. <laughs> All right. So the second step, we want to research and borrow elements from those different bits of inspiration. So as we discussed in the previous episode with James Mendez Hodes, each of these martial cultures have parts of them that make them unique, that create a unique culture, and even small splinters create offshoots that are unique. So really what we're looking for in this stage is to not necessarily pilfer wholesale from a particular culture or an idea, but hone in on what really makes that cool. What inspires you? What excites you? What do you think is the coolest pieces that you want to borrow for your character? And if we bring all of these elements together from a vast array, then we have a unique original thing that we can be proud of, that we really love. And that helped us learn something along the way. Because one of my favorite things about this is we're going to start with some martial cultures from the real world. And Travis and I are not going to do them full justice. There's so much richness and depth to every real world martial culture. But as you, you know, play your character more, you can keep coming back to your sources of inspiration and keep layering more into them. And as James Mendez Hodes mentioned, his first piece of advice is to go try the martial art. And there are lots of options out there for trying martial arts. In fact, during the research of this, I did look up the local HEMA chapter so I could potentially do a dropping class and learn how to wield a warhammer. How cool is that? <laughs> That's pretty badass. Though I probably do not have the upper body strength to pick it up over my head or swing it forcefully. So instead, the second bit of advice that James gave us was to research it. And that's what we did for today. So this is the next best bit, is that I know you and I love the research aspect of learning something new, taking something away, and breaking it down to what, again, excites you about it. So what did you come up with in your research? Well, let me take you through what I've got. First, the actual martial art of the Philippines which has a few different names, but a couple of the main ones that are used to describe this martial art is Arnis or Eskrima, which those words respectively translated into English mean armor and fence. The fence being inspired by fencing. Cool. Yeah. And the armor talking about how they fight in a way that defends their hands while they're fighting. Huh. All right. And I'll get into a little bit more about why that makes sense. Cool. So it had many influences and purposes, just like our characters. Look at that. But since the Philippines had so many different cultural influences throughout their history, I mean, from invaders mostly, unfortunately. <laughs> but as each culture did invade, this martial art would need to adapt to also include techniques to fight this new enemy. Holy shit, that's cool. Yeah. And I mean, when those invaders would come in, they would also learn from their techniques and fold those into their own. So you're just slowly becoming a hybrid that's ready to fight any style. Yeah, exactly. They're ready for anything all the time. That's awesome. And not only that, but they had to further adapt to the conquistadors coming into certain areas and telling them to stop practicing fighting so much because that makes us uncomfortable, especially all the fighting you're doing with blades. We don't want you to cut us. So instead of using two blades to fight, they started using two sticks to fight so they could keep up their techniques and practices. Cool. And when even that wouldn't work, they would incorporate it into their dance routines to hide it in plain sight kind of thing. Nice. Those conquistadors can suck it. Yeah, you idiots. You can't see our dance fighting. And on top of that, one extra layer is that it's theorized that the style had its roots in India as well, drawing from their martial culture. So all of that to say there's a lot of techniques in this one form of martial art. And they even use a lot of different weapons in their training. Like they do hand-to-hand, -hand, they do one sword, one knife, two sticks, two swords... It just goes on and on. And the idea is that you go from your best, like if you have two swords available, cool. But if you get those knocked out of your hands, then you can still fight. And if you can find some sticks, you can still fight. If you just got a knife, you can still fight. Like they're always ready to fight. It's like improvised weapons all day, every day. Yes. And on that note, they often used improvised weapons in their training too to 
encourage that versatility at all times. Like we're talking box cutters and tennis rackets. Like we're using anything to fight. That's awesome. Yeah. And I definitely want to do that with my D&D character. And they also had a huge focus on ambidextrous fighting. They were always trying to use both hands in equal amounts. And the idea with the most prominent techniques is basically that they're creating a whirlwind. They're focused on hitting a lot rather than hitting really hard. This is like windmill style. Like they just come at you swinging. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Those are the basic beats of the martial art. Then we come to the legend of Aligion. Now this legend that I found was part of the narrative chants or epics traditionally performed by the Ifugao community, and it is one of the first 11 masterpieces of the oral and intangible heritage of humanity created in 2001. Neat. Yeah. So it's important. This specific legend is called the Hudhud Ni Aligion, and the beats are as follows. In a village called Hananga, a boy named Aligion was born to the leader of the village. He was a child prodigy in pretty much every way. He's like the chosen one. Totally. He was smart, fast, curious, strong, respectful, all the good things. And in his teen years, he went to face his father's enemy. Instead, he came up against this guy's son, Dinogayan, a fierce warrior with an equally impressive other skills section on his resume. (laughs) Okay. And in battle, Aligion hurled a spear at Dinogayan straight away. Well, he caught it and whipped it straight back. Man, coming strong out of the gates with a real quick twist. Yeah. Can you imagine you're going into battle, you whip that spear, the other guy catches it and whips it back? Oh no, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to catch it and whip it right back. Oh, so they they threw a spear, the same spear, uh-huh. at each other repeatedly. One spear, back and forth forever. That is a, the most dangerous of games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you start getting tired and sloppy. You don't want to do that. And how long do you think it went for? I can extrapolate based on my own abilities to maybe catch a spear and then throw a spear back. I'm going to guess about 15 seconds. Nice. So that's about two catches. Well, I'm thinking like 10 times my capability. Yeah. Which means that I probably get speared on the first throw. Totally. I mean, maybe we should replace it for you with like one of those rubber dodgeball balls. Like you could catch one of those a few times at least. I was... Terrible in dodgeball, too. I don't think I could. Okay, never mind. Don't put yourself in this situation. (laughs) Don't imagine it. They went back and forth with this spear for three years. Oh. I originally thought it said three days, because maybe I could imagine that. But three years, these guys are true legends. No naps. I mean, maybe they agreed to naps at the same time. A a quick truce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a part of the legend was people would bring them food as well. I hope so, at least. Got it. So anyways... You know, after three years, you finally have to say, hey, should we maybe stop? (laughs) This is getting a little bit. I mean, a week is epic, but three years. Yes. At that point, you could probably both mutually agree that you're equally as good at catching and throwing spears. (laughs) We've tested this extremely thoroughly. We know for sure. So, yeah, they called it quits. They had tons of mutual respect for one another. And so they drafted up a peace treaty between their villages. Right on. Happiness was had throughout the land. What a nice legend. Happy ending. Man, legends from the Philippines have way better endings than our own legends. Right? Like They're always so tragic and dark. Very true. I, d- I want a legend about two badasses that battle for three years and then both shake hands at the end and be like, fuck yeah, you're awesome. No, yeah. you're awesome. Because how many legends have you heard where one of the villages in this story goes down hard and then the other one's celebrated as heroes? Yeah, I mean... Greek legends are all just full of gods messing around with their cousins. Like, it's <laughs> not nearly as fun. Yeah, this is pretty refreshing in comparison to, to those kinds of tales. I dig. And finally, the redemption chunk of my character. I'm thinking I like the idea of my fighter being on some kind of a misguided redemption quest in his mind. So I'm thinking he was he was raged in this village, in this community, as a great warrior, but he kind of missed the point of his training the entire time. Like his training was to bring him up as a leader, but he's following his predecessor, the figure of legends too literally. Oh, so he thinks that because things have maybe gone downhill in his community and he doesn't really know how else to help, he's going to go make it better by finding peace with some other community. He's going to go find a worthy and equal opponent, fight them, 
get them to agree to peace, and then bring back the help of another community. I dig that. But really, his own community is just like, come back and help. What are you doing? You're going oh, to I find see. a foe? <laughs> <laughs> we can really use this. somebody to hold that water over there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got it. Maybe he even stole a legendary weapon of the community to make this happen. Oh, yeah. I'm going to take our prized possession and peace out <laughs> yes. for a few years to go find a worthy <laughs> opponent. Don't worry. I'll be back. No, don't. Please. Yeah. So that's my inspiration. Well, let's start with mine. The Warhammer. I mean, we can clearly see the difference between the two of us when it comes to our research and what inspires us. Because you found some truly inspiring legends, and I went to what's big and does a lot of damage. <laughs> what can I hit hard with? What makes the hurdy? Go smashy. Go smashy. So, yeah, Warhammers. So I actually learned something about Warhammers. I didn't realize how versatile they were. I mean, a quick bit of half-assed internet research taught me quite a bit that I kind of assumed I already knew, but clearly did not. So you have long and short Warhammers. Makes sense so far. The long Warhammers, the, they were kind of more like pikes. They had a six or seven foot handle on them. They were mostly used by foot soldiers because you could dismount a horseback rider pretty goddamn quick. Dang. With a well-placed hit to the chest or you could trip up the horse, but they were used by foot soldiers. And then inversely, the short was used for horseback riders because you could be charging through the battlefield just swinging that hammer all willy-nilly and probably clip a lot of people in the dome. Yeah, you got some momentum behind you when you're on a horse. Oh, no, that conjures all kinds of bad images. <laughs> sure, that makes sense because you don't need it to be quite as long on a horse too because like when you're on foot, you want that long-ass handle so you can get a good swing going, right? Oh, exactly. What I also learned about Warhammers was that they were the end of an arms race. Okay. So the arms race was, is he had all these people running around Europe in general, and they're swinging swords. They're really getting pretty good at killing one another. And then somebody says, hey, what if we had armor? That's a cool idea. Well, I would let's, love let's to go not. with some chest protection and let's stop the swords from piercing our hearts and our lungs. <laughs> Super cool idea, Greg. Thanks. Promotion. <laughs> yeah. Promotion for Greg. Hey, hey, boss, can I put this piece <laughs> of metal in front of my heart? <laughs> I think it'll stop a sword. So then they started hacking off each other's limbs because that wasn't protected. So then they said, well, let's put armor there. And it went back and forth and back and forth until you have these heavily protected knights yeah. that are practically immune because now you have to get better with swords because you have to use technique and all kinds of training to try to get in between those plates and those things that, you know, every new year, the coolest armor comes out and all <laughs> these knights start donning that shit. And now you have to learn how to defend against that. Yeah. So along comes the Warhammer, which was the answer to heavily armored up knights, because it didn't matter if they were wearing armor, if you could give them a concussion by knocking them in the dome or hitting them in the chest. Your technique and skill goes down considerably based on the amounts of hits you take to the skull area. Exactly. So the technique is wind them or knock them unconscious with a nice blunted blow. And then the invention of the spike on the rear side came Ooh. along of penetrating that armor like a can opener. Yikes. Youchy. So... That's what I learned about uh, Warhammers. That's fair. And after that, you're saying they couldn't really just keep increasing the thickness of the armor because then you're just standing in place. <laughs> then you're inside just an iron bell. Yeah. And it would be a while till motors came along to make those suckers move. Yeah, exactly. So they were also pretty adept at disarming people and binding them. Okay. With the hook and the hammer, you could really draw people's arms around their backs and, you know, yank them around the battlefield. So those are pretty good. Cool. Then, of course, I turned my attention to Vikings and Berserkers, which I would imagine, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know the kind of gist to Vikings and specifically Berserker Vikings, but very little is known about them. And based on art and plates that have been carved depicting some of the Viking warriors, that they were bear, wolf, and boar warriors that could shapeshift into their respective animals. Well, of course, that was the literal translation because they were depicted with bear heads. 
but it's assumed that Vikings just wore the bear skins and when they went into battle, they would go berserk. And that was Hamask, which translates as change form. That's where the legends of Viking shapeshifters came from. Makes sense. And now they would enter a state of wild fury, potentially by imbibing some drugs. Yeah, they, they did them drugs. And they would be chewing on the edges of their shield and scaring the living shit out of their enemies. Yeah. Bearheads chewing on shields. I'm not into a fight. They were that. essentially the Viking shock troopers meant to just get in there and cause disarray because they were fighting against refined military that fought in formation and had plans of attack. Well, that plan of attack gets thrown right the fuck out the window when you have a wild Viking who just charges in the middle, wielding axes and all kinds of stuff, and it really puts your plans on the back foot. Yeah. We're talking pure chaos versus order. Exactly. You can't do much in that. So then I started going down the route of shock troopers. And shock troopers were essentially being used as far back as Alexander the Great. Now, he used what was called his companion cavalry, which were Macedonian troops that were led by Cletus the Black. And they were horse-mounted shock troops that would ride in and break formations. So... You have all of these soldiers on foot. They're all in these big, massive fields ready to fight. And what they would use is the hammer and anvil formation. So essentially what they would do is you would have a whole bunch of foot soldiers that had shields, and they are essentially the anvil. They are holding your enemy from advancing. And then you send in the hammer. And that is your cavalry that cuts through the battlefield and just destroys all their formations because they're faster and they're swinging all kinds of stuff they're swinging maces they're just knocking people out sounds deadly effective yeah chase them forward into your anvil now this also led to a little bit of an aside is that in researching cletus the black he was alexander the great's one of his best friends he named him cletus the black because he had another friend named Cletus the White. All right. And the other friend's name was Cletus the White because he already had a friend named Cletus the Black. It didn't make any sense. Real chicken and egg situation here. Yeah, yeah, I didn't quite understand what was going on there. And man, if I was one of those guys, I would rather have something else to distinguish me. <laughs> I am one color. Yeah. I am Cletus the Orange. I'm Cletus the Blue. <laughs> How about Cletus the Indomitable? Yeah. Or... Cletus the Friendly. Cletus the Destroyer. Cletus the Animal Lover. <laughs> Something that actually describes your personality. Yeah. Rather than just like, I'm going to give you just some kind of blanket statement. So Cletus the Black actually died because, and if you Google this, it's awesome, because there are a whole bunch of classic art pieces depicting this event. And they look very emotional and dramatic in the style of old Renaissance art, where you've got like people that are weeping and crying and all kinds of like, it's very action packed. Must have been an epic event. It must have been. What it really amounted to was a whole bunch of war dudes got rip roaring drunk. And Cletus the Black said some things about his best friend, Alexander the Great, namely that his dad was really the thing behind all of his accomplishments and he didn't deserve any of the uh, accolades that he got. Ooh, that's an ego bruiser. Yeah, deep cut. So for someone that's named himself the Great. <laughs> Well, he was a great shot because Alexander the Great took a spear and threw it right through Cletus's chest. Yikes. So apparently he was not as good at catching. They could have gone on for three years catching a spear back and forth, but instead Cletus caught it with his chest. Dang. Poor choice. I recommend the hand. So yeah, it was basically a throwdown that turned into a drunken brawl. Yeah. And then artists painted exactly for years. <laughs> all right. So I'm done. That was all of my research. And then, of course, we have the living weapon thing that I really I dig. For some reason, I find that compelling. You know, just the idea of what do you do as a soldier? Like, this is a common problem that happens in our modern day society of when people go off to war and then they come back and go, what the hell do I do now? I spent half my life training to be a weapon. Yeah. And we talked about this deeply in our Warforged episode, but there is a lot there to play with as a character for sure. Yeah, I find it deeply compelling. Yeah. So 
that's mine. Now we need to create our fighter's culture. Now this is where we actually apply it to D&D, all of our research, all of our inspiration. <laughs> now I deeply hope that your character's tragic backstory is that he murdered his friend with a spirit of the chest. I mean, not quite as good. <laughs> I'll have to work that in somehow. Yeah, I think you should. All right, so let's jump into the culture that I've created from these inspirations. Before we do, though, it's important to point out that, again, the systems that are going to help us do this already exist. We've already spent the time, and it just goes to show that, I don't know, maybe we were onto something, <laughs> because we keep seeming to use these two systems, and we're going to use, first, the culture creator that's available on our website at hookandchance.com forward slash resources. You can find the culture creator, and we're just going to take those same beats. And the first of those beats is values. So I gave this culture the values of social responsibility. So that's to one's group or family, specifically taking up the conflicts of your family as your own. That's important to this culture. Nice. Yeah. Respect. And that applies to everybody, specifically including your enemies. And that's a part of that martial art that I was talking about, too. One of the principles is that you respect your opponent when you go into combat. Yeah. And it comes from that legend, too. Then we've got discipline. It's incredibly important to have that discipline when you're talking about your fighting prowess and you're, you're facing your foes. Sure. Knowledge. And that ties into respect for elders, respect for the people that have passed down all of these lessons. Okay. And I think peaceful resolutions is an important value. From the legend. Yeah. Yeah. That legend has informed this culture. And I'm going to keep this pretty simple, but the backstory of the culture is basically that it's a community of mostly farmers, not too many people trained in combat to the degree that my character is, but they all had basic combat skills as conflict with outside forces was relatively common, and they generally had high expectations for my character. Kind of like those kids in school. It's just like, they're going to do great things. So there's a lot of pressure. Got it. Cool. Well, I'm taking on modifying what I already had for this particular character. And in this particular game, I wanted to play a character that was fairly new to the world that we were playing in, and in this case, came from the Underdark to the surface, specifically to Waterdeep, because we were playing in the Waterdeep Dragon Heist game. Now, from this, he was grown up around drow and, and that kind of thing. So we've got drow who live in the dark. They're... Prowess is really around using darkness and subtlety. And I mean, basically, this is an entire culture of rogues. <laughs> like, yeah, they're not heavy hitters. And a culture like that is going to develop in a particular way that they don't necessarily need a lot of heavy hitters. But what if on the occasion they do? What do you do then? What do you do when a whole bunch of Duragar that are heavily armored come to tangle with you? Yeah, you're going to need somebody that can... Take them on head on. Well, yeah, daggers and arm crossbows <laughs> with tiny little bolts are not necessarily going to do a lot of damage to them. So very similar to the idea of the cavalry, you need somebody that can get in there and dent that armor using their warhammer and break up all of the tactics so that the drow can use that disarray and that chaos to their best abilities. In this case, striking from darkness and that kind of poison and damage and, you know, daggers to the throat kind of stuff. Totally. So as soon as the line is broken and their, you know, all of their tactics are shifted into chaos, then they can strike. Well, exactly. And especially when you're fighting in the Underdark, you need, you know, to use tunnels and that kind of stuff to your best abilities. And when you've got a line of Duragar that are heavily shielded and heavily armored, it's going to be hard to get past them. Yeah. But Drow are also selfish and they try to preserve oneself. So you need somebody that you're willing to sacrifice. Yeah. So you need a living weapon. So this is where we get to the idea that Goliaths and dwarves and creatures like Quaggoths would be great frontline fighters for the drow. Yeah, and Quaggoths are those big, burly, furry creatures that live in the Underdark too? Yeah. Yeah. So you can train them to, to get in there. So what if you had an advanced force that could go in, draw all of the attention, cause chaos as quickly as possible? So I imagine that maybe they made an elite team and they trained these folks to go in in advance. So their values of this elite team are obedient. You know, obviously you need some obedience yeah. if 
you're going to bow down to your drow overlords. The ones that have been selected for this elite group have got that in spades. Yeah. They're obsessive. So you need to indoctrinate. You need to brainwash these people into dying for the cause of the drow. Yeah. You need some crazy discipline. They need to be able to go in and face death right in the face and not flinch. And endure insane amounts of training. And then you need to add a little bit of fatalism in there. So the idea that these soldiers are destined to die. In fact, it would be the greatest thing, kind of like the war boys, you know, in that sense that if you die in battle, that's the greatest thing you could possibly ever achieve, especially in the protection of Menza Baranzan and the noble drow that reside there. All right. I like the Mad Max reference. That helps me picture these folks. Yeah. So then you've got the beliefs that death in the service of the drow is all to be desired. And uh, again, that that backstory, we've got the drow creating these well-trained warriors for a particular war with the Duragar. Now, typically, the drow and the Duragar kind of get along. I feel like they've got this tenuous piece, but at some point, they must have come toe-to-toe. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of conflict there. And you've got the Duragar, which are heavily armored, tough little dwarves. And then you've got the drow that are, you know, slight, thin, elven warriors. It, those those two styles just are going to clash. <laughs> yeah. So like we determined, we're going to use these fighters as shock troops to be turned on and off like berserkers. So we've got this like element of, hey, go and fight. And now they enter this trance-like state where they got to get in there and break that lineup. And now I'm thinking I'm going to add a little bit into this backstory inspired by the Alexander the Great story. All right. So after a fight between two of the commanders who had been commanding these troops, one speared the other and it fractured the group. And then after much more fighting and the war between the Duragar and the Drow ended or the skirmish that we're concocting in our heads, the numbers of warriors have dwindled so much that they became bodyguards and enforcers. The few remaining were passed to noble houses because now there's no need for them. We're done with that whole skirmish. Okay. They are now given to drow families. Gotcha. And to inspire us just a little bit more and work in some more of those juicy details, they're going to use blackened spider chest armor. Not made of spiders. No, no, not, not made of compressed spiders. <laughs> Maybe it would work. That's mostly spider juice. You don't know. No, I'm thinking some serious metal armor, but of course you've got the drow adornments of spiders yeah. because the Macedonian companion cavalry all wore some of the like the man boob chest plates, <laughs> the, the chest pieces. They all looked like idealized. You know, they had six packs, but they were it was armor. Yeah, it was like those rubber bodysuits you can get now to make yourself look cool at the beach. <laughs> do you? Do you do that? I'm saying you could. Oh, I see. Not that I yeah. do. I got it. So, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Some really cool chest armor that all of the soldiers use. That's what kind of unites them. So then, when they were passed on to the noble houses, when typical methods of subtlety, blackmail, and those kind of drow approaches didn't work, they were used to force compliance with snap decisions, so become subservient to whoever the drow house was, or die, which is where the Warhammer stuff comes in. So my character is basically coming up in this place where you're not trying to kill people anymore. You were, but now in service of the noble houses, they don't need killers. They need people that can get compliance out of other people. So mm. they are sicked on targets and go and get this person to agree to work with us because I'm tired of diplomacy. It's bullshit, but I don't want to get my hands dirty. So go knock him off his horse. And if he doesn't agree to work with us, then you can give him the pointy end. Yeah. An enforcer. Yeah. So there I you like go. it. I can see this coming together pretty well so then we need to create our fighter and to do this we're going to use the second resource that we've created this you can also find on hookandchance.com forward slash resources and this is the character and traits planner just for context before we hop into these character descriptions the way it works is you start off with the character and some of their personality traits. Now, Jordan and I feel like the character traits or simple one word personality traits 
are a lot easier to roleplay with than the particular and usual bonds, ideals, and flaws that are prompted on character sheets. So we've chosen our character and their traits. We want to go with a general theme. Then we go through their entire story leading up to the day that your game kicks off. So we start with a status quo or where they were at the very beginning of their story, what kicked off their adventure, why they resisted destiny, because you need a character to resist in order to be heroic when they answer the call to adventure. Then you want to determine what their ultimate want is, why are they adventuring, and why does that conflict with the need? What do they really need to learn in order to become a more fully fleshed out character or to actually end up where they want to? Exactly. And then finally, the cherry on top for your DM is an ally and a nemesis that they can use within their story that can or cannot show up. And it doesn't make that much of a difference, but just one of those NPCs that your DM can use. So Jordan, let's hear about your character. Sounds good. So we'll jump right into that. I didn't have a character coming into this exercise. So I'm going to name mine Amta, short for Amtaleo, who was the character in my legends, father. Cool. It's a nice little tip of the hat. Yeah. Then I'm going to give him a couple of positive traits, a neutral trait, and at least a negative trait to balance him off. The two positive I've got are focused and curious. Figure that can lend to the role playing. He's always trying to figure out stuff about the world. Uh, His neutral trait is that he's competitive. I mean, he had to be competitive to get as good as he is, and he's looking for that equal. Yeah. He's traveling the world looking for that equal. Yeah. And then his negative trait is overconfidence and that he bestows respect based on fighting ability, not your character. Oh, I see. Yeah, so he could end up like looking up to kind of a shit bag, but a shit bag that can fence really well. Yeah, like he wants this so bad. He wants this outcome of finding that equal so bad that he kind of blinds himself to their other negative qualities. Got it. Then the theme that I've touched on many times already is kind of that creating peace, finding allies. So he's from that community of farmers, and I'm going to say that the leader has recently died. So this forces the community to start asking for folks to step up, to take on some of the responsibilities that they need skilled people to step into. Got it. And this kind of comes directly from that legend, where now instead your character is going to take the wrong message and it's going to peace out. Yep. Got it. And then his ultimate want and need, which we cover in the character creator, we think this is a really important step. His want is to find that perfect nemesis ally to bring peace to his family. And his need is to actually help his family by returning to them and doing responsible things. That's interesting because you've kind of built in like the ultimate need is what your character needs to do in order to mature and become a better character and bring their story full circle. Yeah. You're essentially saying when their adventuring days are done, they'll they'll actually complete their ultimate need. (laughs) Unless they die out there, then they'll come back and things will be, yeah. Got it. A good wrap up. And then the ally and nemesis characters that I'm going to give to the DM to play with. The ally is an elder from his home that has always kind of encouraged him in the right direction but more importantly who taught him this fighting style and the others in that community nice and then the nemesis is i think an incredibly peaceful traveler that has come through their community many times that could be the ally that he's after anyways but isn't a great fighter so he needs to like look past his stupidity to realize that he's got the allies that he needs kind of thing right on And just some other flavor that I'm going to use from all of these inspirations to kind of influence how my character fights and acts. He's going to use two short swords with a focus on dexterity. He's going to carry one spear with him. I think this is like the legendary weapon from the community or passed down through his family kind of thing. Nice. To get a little bit into the mechanics of D&D, his subclass is going to be an Eldritch Knight because Eligion was said to be kind of magical as well. And with that subclass comes Weapon Bond, where you choose a weapon that you can't be disarmed of and can summon. Nice. Makes sense, right? Summon a spear. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Sword Burst Cantrip goes really well with the martial art, which is a spectral circle of blades that surrounds you. And this one's really dumb, but I'm going to do it anyways. He's going to have the Friend's Cantrip, which he's going to cast in combat, despite the fact that the spell specifies that the target can't be hostile towards you. He's going to keep trying to make friends in combat. The one that it works on is the one that is his true friend. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
I like it. <laughs> he's going to focus on opponents that he sees most likely to become that great nemesis turned ally. He's going to try to acquaint himself with opponents during fights. And during the fighting descriptions that I give, I'm going to focus on those whirling blades. And I think I'm going to describe each successful hit as actually a series of quick hits. And I found something really quick to help me with that process. There's the DeCampo 1-2-3 style of this martial art that was created by Jose Caballero. It's a series of three strikes done in succession. The first is to fake or faint. The second is to counter their attacks. And the third is to finish your opponent. Ooh. So I'm thinking each successful hit will actually be me describing a feint, a counter, and an actual strike because he's moving so fast. That's very good. That's awesome because now you have something that you can describe in the session that feels more specific to a fighter as opposed to I punch them. Or just I, I'm whirling my blades. Yeah, you've got a lot more specificity in your attacks because you did the research on this particular martial art. Yeah, I feel much more equipped going into this character. Very nice. Well, my character of Zerus, who already at this point is a level one barbarian and a level five fighter. So he's cross-classed and he went with samurai to just keep him going even when he's had the shit beat out of him. Okay. Because that subclass really adds a lot to that. Some endurance. Yeah. Gotcha. So we've got the character traits of orderly, obedient, disciplined. And then because typically what we're trying to do with the culture that we've created and then the character is we want the character to fly in the face of some of the cultural traits why do they maybe struggle with this culture that they're a part of so i added they've got the character trait of wanting freedom believing in freedom and believing that they want to be peaceful so there we've we're leading into that living weapon idea gotcha they actually don't want to fight even though they're really good at it yeah that's a lot more interesting than just running into every battle without any hesitation kind of thing. Now, myself as a player, I can lean into that theme of living weapon and really start to ask my own character questions of when is violence necessary? Yeah. Now, we've got the general story where they were an enforcer. Now, in this case, I'm going to tie it directly into the campaign that we are playing. So this is an enforcer sent to capture Dalekar who's a character in the Waterdeep Dragon Ice campaign. And during a routine recall of go and get Dalakar and drag his ass back to Menza Baranzan, his handler, who works for House Bainray, a very high-ranking drow house, were separated. And he was able to catch with his quarry, who is Dalakar, but he is separated from his handler, who keeps him accountable to bringing that person back. So this gave Zerus the resist destiny of do I return to Menza Baranzan with my target or do I use the opportunity so close to the surface and the city and the sunlight where the drow typically don't like to go to escape? Yeah, to and find his own life. Yeah. So his call to adventure is he asks his quarry, Dalakar, take me to the surface. Show me how to get there. Nice. Yeah. His ultimate want and need is he just wants to be left alone. He wants to be unknown in a large city and just live peacefully. I get that vibe. I feel that way when I go to Vancouver. <laughs> just be faceless and yeah. blend into the crowd. Yeah. But his ultimate need is he needs to find reasons to use his talents for good. And he needs to lean into what he's good at and fight against similar corruption that he sees on the surface as he's already very well acquainted with from Menza Baranzan. Yeah. And he needs to feel good about his abilities. And then, of course, baked right in, he's got an ally and a nemesis. He's got Dalakar, who's now his new ally, the only person that can show him the streets of Waterdeep. Yeah. And we've got House Bainray, of any of whom could be sending someone after Zerus to bring him back to Menza Baranzan, back to his employer. Always watching his back. Oh, yeah. He's going to be looking over his shoulder lots. So in this, again, I found more fighter details because we did some research. He has an on and off command word that stops his berserking or his barbarian, his single barbarian level. Nice. In addition to that, I will always attempt to charge in from the side and wade directly into the middle, much like that anvil and hammer wartime strategy. I like it because it's not too intricate of a strategy 
Like you can actually use this in a wide array of fights and it's not going to be like you're stopping everything and trying to explain to everyone your battle tactics. You're just you're just doing a pretty simple thing. And honestly, after I do three or four fights like this and the rest of my party sees how he tends to approach this stuff, they're going to be like, ah, shit, he's going to wade right into the middle. <laughs> yeah. He's going to take all of the ire. He's going to favor his Warhammer, which now, thanks to this whole process, he's actually going to try to incapacitate with non-lethal strikes from now on. So all of his hits are going to be non-lethal. He's going to try and grapple and restrain lots because he doesn't want to kill people without the command from his handler. Huh. Feels uncomfortable. Since he's got the rest of his party, unless they say, oh, we don't need this person or this person deserves to die, like that's that's going to be a whole different conversation now between Zerus and the rest of his party. That he is really not used to having. No. Yeah. No, it's going to be interesting to advocate for himself. And then he's also not going to really dig sneaking. He prefers the direct approach because that's everything he's ever known. And he's going to use all of his abilities in a single fight. He's a berserker. He's a shock trooper. He's not meant to go another round. Like all of the training that he's ever undergone has said, wait in. If you die, you die. But this is your purpose. So really, I'm going to stop trying to play so tactically. I'm going to stop reserving some of my skills and I'm just going to get in there. Hell yeah. That's what barbarian Goliath fighters are for, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Well, we hope that helped. And honestly, I hope that you take the opportunity, take a moment, go to our website, hookandchance.com, go to the resources page and find some of these resources. Let us know if they've been helpful in the past because they constantly help us. We, you know, get high on our own supply, so to speak. <laughs> because we constantly use these same resources to flesh out our characters. And every single time I do, I always thank myself. Thank you for creating this resource. It's just helped me make a better D&D character. And the reason we honestly need them is because we go on these rabbit trails of research and then we just have a smattering of stuff that we need some structure for. Otherwise, it's all going to be completely useless to us when we sit down to play. And every time I create a new character, I risk making a standard sword and board fighter that really does not have much more going on. Yeah. Then they're a elite warrior. And I think we've done it. We've made two fighters that feel absolutely distinct. Hopefully when I take the time to draw up character drawings, that they don't feel like they're going to just get lost in the sea of fighters <laughs> on Google image search. Yeah. Thanks always to our patrons. Who continue to fight for us to make content like this episode. Felix R. Chris F. I see spiders where there are none. The Senate. Lucas D. Lila G. The GM Tim. Nevermore. Thomas W. Tyler G. Ty N. Heavy Arms. Eric R. Aldros. Leprechaun. And Will HP. Thank you all so much. We're always so thankful for your support and your kindness and your participation and interaction on our Discord and in the creation of every one of these episodes. Thanks also to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects that you heard in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. You can join an excellent community of players and DM on our Discord that are always trading fun things. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and, and don't throw spears at your friends. <laughs> you take away nothing else. Life advice. <laughs>